Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is Ottawa stalling on combating foreign interference? A lot of experts seem to think so. We'll delve into that for you. Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University, will join us to discuss the latest Bank of Canada business survey. And Jeremy Hansen has been selected to become the first Canadian to venture further into space and orbit the moon with Artemis II. What's that mean for the Canadian space program? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. In our nation's capital, in Ottawa, of course, the concern about uh, foreign involvement in Canadian politics and Canadian elections continues. And, uh, well, there's some concern about just how slowly the government seems to be moving on some of these. Emily Joveski joins us to set the scene for us. A lawyer for Han Dong says he's demanding that Global News make a full apology and retraction for publishing what he describes as false, malicious, irresponsible and defamatory statements about Dong, now an independent MP. Global published a story last week citing unidentified security sources who alleged Dong told a Chinese diplomat in February 2021 that releasing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who were detained in China, would benefit the federal conservatives. The media outlet has also published allegations that Dong benefited from Chinese foreign interference in his successful bid to become the liberal candidate for his riding in 2019. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So that's going to get sorted out in the courts. The, the greater concern and the more immediate concern, I guess, right now is what's the federal government doing about this after the allegations did become public because of that reporting. And, and by the way, Global News stands by their report. I just put a postscript to the to the report from Emily Javesky there. But why so slowly? Uh, interesting, that, and, and this, this is not just opposition MPs that are asking questions like this. It's security experts as well. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Charles Burton, a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Dr. Burton, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Good to speak with you, Bill. Why? Why the baby steps here? I, 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 people are saying, "Look, you." Apparently, we found out that you know all this story is relatively new to us. Uh, the government had some idea of this. We were told nine, ten months ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's clearly been some some interference by uh, China in two elections, and it would stand to reason that you know, even if that didn't make any result change in the result, we can't really tell whether the Chinese interference led to people changing their vote and led to candidates not being elected who should have been elected or candidates being elected who really shouldn't have been elected and so on. Or indeed, you know, whether anything that Mr. Dong might have done in terms of heading out to the Chinese Consul General in Toronto and and giving uh, some, some uh, guidance as to keeping Kovrigan's favor in prison hell for a bit longer, you know, whether or not that's that uh, that'll be proven in court, but whether that's an illegal activity is the question. So evidently what we see in a report in the Globe and Mail is that for quite some time, you know, getting on for a year, the um, security agencies and Department of Justice have been making some very reasonable suggestions about changing the criminal code to make foreign interference an offense. And modernizing the um, Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act, the CSIS Act, that would make it easier for CSIS to not only investigate things, but turn over that evidence to the RCMP so that the people who are doing the malign activities could be made accountable in a court of law or expelled as you know diplomats to Canada. And the government 
has been promising but not acting to hold some kind of consultations to set up a foreign agent registry that would require people advocating for a foreign state to be transparent about the fact that they're receiving money from foreign sources. You know, you, there there have been a lot of questions, such as the retainer that Jean Charest had from the Huawei company that um, he had not, you know, made public until he was required to um, in the course of the conservative campaign, which calls into question maybe some statements that he made in support of Huawei earlier before we knew that he was on the payroll. So, you know, there are lots of very reasonable things that should be done to get on top of this situation. But evidently, yet again, the government seems to be receiving these reports, uh, recommendations to do something about malign activities on the part of China and Canada and puts them into a, the back of a file cabinet and forgets about them. And, uh, and, and I mean, one can only assume that that's because there are too many people that would be shown to be engaging in activities that aren't consistent with our Canadian ways, you know, receiving money from foreign sources, becoming beholden to a foreign regime, and they just don't want to open up that uh, box of worms. But they're going to have to at some point, aren't they? I mean, Charles, when you consider the gravity of this situation, and and I know because I've heard some of the deflection as well from from MPs and even from the minister from the odd time, uh, that, well, we're not sure just how much of an impact it had. In my mind, anyway, that's not the issue. The fact that they're doing it is the issue. How effective they are is, is something altogether different. But if we do nothing about the fact that they're able to do this, they're going to get better at it. And we don't know where that's going to lead, do we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, if they're able to engage in this kind of, of interference activity and, and you know, subversion of our policymakers to, to get them to, to not address serious issues in Canada-China relations, like China's cyber espionage and, and harassment of people here in Canada, and, you know, the list just goes on and on. Obviously, if there's no cost to the regime of doing this, that they're going to do more of it. I mean, they, you know, and and I mean, these aren't things that that we can do reciprocally in any way. So, it just makes sense that that in the Canadian national interest, in the interests of our security and sovereignty, that our government should take the advice of the relevant agencies and enact legislation to 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 put an end to this but they don't and you know you can defer for a long time i mean the, the common summer break will be coming up and then mm -hmm. you know do we have a new parliament do they prorogue the parliament is an election called like if they can drag these things out long enough um they'll go away from 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 the political point of view it really does seem to be a question that every time we try and do something that would possibly expose Canadians for getting themselves caught up in, you know, greed and naivete and getting caught into a, a situation where they are beholden to a foreign government, not just to Canada, that um, that uh, the, the matter is deprioritized and nothing happens. And this has been going on for years. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, including myself, including on this program, have been raising the alarm and everybody agrees something should be done. And then somehow or other, you know, the government sort of waffles back and forth and nothing happens. I mean, you know, you've listed some of the things that, that should be done and, and have been suggested uh, to the government about this. And the reality here is we're not asking them to invent the wheel here. I mean, other countries have faced these same challenges. Australia comes to mind and have acted upon these. There is a template that Canada could follow if they were so, you know, inclined. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got the Australian Foreign um, Influence Transparency Scheme Act. Um, you know, a, Australia, a country that has a similar Westminster parliamentary system to our own, a similar system of justice, you know, similar desire to protect human rights and individual freedoms. We could basically be cutting and pasting that thing and getting it through Parliament in three months. But, you know, they, the government says, well, we need to do public consultations. And what, what if it leads to racism against Chinese people, which, you know, doesn't make any sense at all. There wasn't any rise in racism in Australia when they put through an act to try and, and constrain the activities of hostile regimes. And it's not just China. You know, this is a foreign in influence transparency scheme act. It, it'll pick up a lot of people from Russia and Iran and, you know, other countries that are trying to do similar things and can because they can get away with it. And my, you know, I'm pretty sure that most of the people that will be found to be required to register their foreign source of income will not be Chinese. You know, they will be people in power in Ottawa who, um, you know, are, are, are mainstream Canadians that are happy to take money from a foreign regime if they think no one will find out about it. So, and I mean, that's the transparency that's on there and there's going to be pushback. I know that happened in Australia too, but you know, the government was, you know, with, strong and, and, and dedicated and simply said, look, we're going to do this. And uh, it, it seems to be the most practical thing to do here. But I guess the other element that, that I think should accelerate this process, I, I'm sure you watched over the weekend as I did, uh, the, the Sunday political shows and, and both the the interim RCMP commissioner and, and the head of CSIS have been, uh, of course, testifying in front of committees the last couple of days. And it's mm -hmm. pretty obvious, Charles, they're both very frustrated, but they're as if they see as if they're being handcuffed here. Like we want to be able to do stuff here. And we just don't have the wherewithal to do it. Right. I mean, that's why you need to change the criminal code to make clarity on what's legal and what's illegal. I mean, you know, there's nothing illegal about a about a foreign embassy expressing a preference for one political party or another. I mean, it's probably not very desirable diplomatically to put yourself in that position, especially if the people that you didn't endorse don't get into power. But there's nothing illegal about it. But there are a lot of things that are illegal, such as funneling money through proxies to support the candidates that you think will will be better for your country. And then and then the, the CSIS Act has to be changed that will make it easier for CSIS to transfer information to the RCMP so that people who are engaging in these illegal activities can be brought to account. I mean, right now, we have cases um, where people are being incarcerated and eventually released because CSIS wouldn't release the evidence that would allow the case to go forward because of these um, constraints under the law. So it's, you know, as you say, we just look at what other countries that are more effective in, in this activity are doing, our like-minded um, uh, allies, and simply decide that Canada should get its legislation up to contemporary standards so the bad guys can be brought before a court of law and allowed to defend themselves and subject to sanction if they're found to be violating the law, which I I think there are quite a few of them that, you know, would fall into that category if the if the government had the will and the legislative ability to to pursue these cases properly. And obviously, that's what Canadians want. But Charles, the governing legislation, as you talked about, for both the RCMP and CSIS, uh, quite aside from the evidence that seems to be in front of us now about about 
possible interference from the, the Chinese Communist Party here. Those those pieces of legislation should be updated anyway. I mean, the CSIS Act essentially uh, seemed to be centered around the idea of foreign terrorism, uh, you know, 9-11 attacks and things of this nature. They didn't talk about this this kind of work, about foreign influence in politics or homegrown influence in politics and things of this nature. So it's it's an outdated piece of legislation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a 1984 act produced in a very different context. And, you know, it stands to reason that it's, that we put a lot of money into having a spy agency and then they find out a whole bunch of stuff. And then, um, you know, nothing is done to, to address the information that they're able to bring to the government's attention. So they sort of curate uh, intelligence of malign activities, share it. Evidently, with our allies, uh, you know, in the Globe and Mail reports, it wasn't just the five eyes that we were sharing this information about Chinese interference in our elections with lots of other agencies, giving our allies the impression that, you know, Canada is a pretty weak country because we know about all this sort of stuff. We're telling everybody else about it and we're not doing a damn thing to stop it. What does that do to Canada's credibility within those organizations then? Enormously damaging. I mean, you know, the United States has very great concerns about Canada's China policy and the, you know, what you call elite capture and infiltration into our institutions. And we have to take this seriously because they're not going to be sharing intelligence with us if we don't, um, you know, do something to get into compliance with the norms of other allies like Australia and the UK. And so, uh, and and for that matter, I think in terms of seeing us as a as a good ally and and a country that that they should be um, allowing more economic integration and exempting from these buy America things, it's all of a piece. You know, we're not investing mm -hmm. enough in our defense. We're not holding up our side in NORAD. Um, we're not paying our two percent into NATO, and then we expect the United States to make all sorts of concessions to benefit us. I think we're we're dreaming in technicolor there, if we. If we think that we can put them off so long, then you see, you know, Minister Champagne going down to Washington and talking about decoupling with China, and then Minister Freeland going down to Washington and talking about friendshoring with, you know, to avoid our dependence on China. And then you come back to Canada and you hear them talking about the importance of maintaining engagement with China. So, you know, I think the Americans are figuring out that that we're 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 a bit two faced on this issue. And that our Indo-Pacific strategy seems to be more words than action. And, you know, we show it to them. But where is the implementation? Where are the necessary changes made to, to, to bring us up to speed so that the Americans, in fact, confidence that Canada is uh, an ally that can be relied on? Absolutely. I will have to leave it there for now. But uh, as, as you say, it may well be embarrassing to the government, but it's very, very necessary to go down that road. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks again, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Charles Burton uh, from the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've got to rise towards uh, this economic recovery. And of course, we've got the Bank of Canada deciding to uh, put the, the pause button on about uh, raising interest rates. So how's it all working out? Well, there are a couple of reports here that uh, may give us some insight into that. Uh, companion pieces, really, the Business Outlook Survey and the Survey of Consumer Expectations, both published Monday show that uh, Canadian businesses uh, are still pretty nervous about the economic recovery, uh, despite the fact that there seems to be stronger than expected growth. To uh, analyze all of this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Moshe Landau, a sec senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, great to have you back. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. 
You told us a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the, the perspectives about what's going to be happening coming down the road here, uh, that if we keep talking about a recession, we're going to get a recession. And, and 60% of the respondents to these surveys said they're expecting a small or significant economic decline over the next 12 months. Uh, are, is, is that what's happening here? Are we talking ourselves right into this? Yeah, and when they start believing it, they're going to make it happen, right? Because what do you do if you think a recession is going to be coming your way? This is where you start cutting back shifts or you start reducing production or you tell your suppliers to hold off on sending you product. And of course, the reality is that when you start cutting production, then GDP is going to decline and that is going to be a recession. So uh, is, I don't want to say that it's inevitable then, but I mean, you know, what do we have to do to snap ourselves out of this? Yeah, it, it, it's a finely balanced line, right? You don't want to put your head in the sand either and just continue to pretend that everything's going to be fine, right? So it's, you know, psychology goes some of the way towards determining whether we have a recession or not. But the reality is that, you know, denying it is is not going to make it avoidable either. So I, I, I think that uh, businesses are, are probably realistic in that they do expect that, yes, an economic slowdown is coming. Uh, I think it's now the extent to which they react to that slowdown. So if they, you know, become drama queens and over overreact, then it can make a, a mild recession bad. But I, I think at this point, they're probably right that something's coming. The other element to this, too, that I find interesting is you look at some of the uh, the, the statistics from these two reports uh, and juxtapose that against some of the things that, for instance, the government's telling us about what's going to be happening. You know, they're going to wrestle inflation to the ground and they expect that maybe even by the end of this year, uh, we could be down to two and a half, three percent inflation. Most of the respondents in these surveys are saying it's not going to happen. Uh, they're still talking maybe four or four and a half percent. If that, uh, I, I don't know if they're just being negative about this or maybe more realistic. Maybe a little bit of both. I, I, I'm optimistic. So I, I think that they will get inflation down to to 3% at least by the end of this year, whether they can get it to 2 that's maybe, I guess, how much of a slowdown we've experienced. Uh, but, you know, there is always going to be a disconnect between, uh, say, the government, which has to put in forecasts of GDP and inflation into their budget process, uh, the Bank of Canada, which is probably a little more realistic because they're apolitical and so they have no skin in the game, and businesses which are, are probably trying to uh, justify any decisions that they're going to be taking in terms of production and and how they behave. So I'm more inclined to follow the guidance of the Bank of Canada than uh, you know business reports. Sometimes too, those questions can be leading in a way. Uh, that generate certain answers that might not occur uh, with more impartial analysis. Well, exactly. And, and about one-third of the consumers that uh, they were polling here uh, said they've already decided to start cutting back this year, maybe not take a vacation uh, and going to restaurants less often and things of this nature. So uh, you're right, there's got to be an attitudinal change here too. The, the one piece of good news that jumped out at me though, uh, it looks like employment is up, uh, which was a real concern for an awful lot of sectors of the economy. They couldn't find workers. Yeah, uh, employment continues to defy expectations here. You and I have discussed before uh, that I think that if we do experience a recession, it's not going to be the 20th century style recession that you and I probably think about. Uh, this is going to be one where unemployment is probably not going to rise much because six months ago we were talking about this need for workers and, and all of these businesses were closing on Mondays and Tuesdays because they just couldn't find workers. So, you know, the likeliest outcome then is that they do believe that there's a slowdown coming. All they do is they take the help wanted sign out of the window, uh, but they stick with their existing workforce because the last thing that you want is for us to be having a conversation in six months about businesses can't find workers and we can't get ourselves out of a recession because we can't increase production enough. So this is the type of thing then that 
yeah, the, the, the employment reports continue to show that there's a lot of resilience there. The big issue is, uh, you know, connecting it to inflation. If workers then use that to try and leverage big wage increases, that itself could become inflationary because businesses at some point are going to have to pass some of those costs on. Is that already starting to happen? Uh, because I, I was under the impression that even though you know employment is increasing, uh, so are wages. Uh, we're talking about four point seven percent increase in wages, which seems counterproductive to this this battle against inflation, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it it's unfortunate, right? Uh, I, I think you and I even spoke uh, a year ago, give or take, where uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada had told workers, uh, "Cool your your engines here and don't go crazy asking for big raises." Uh, this was upsetting to workers who were experiencing 8% inflation at the time. So yeah, as soon as you get the ability to renegotiate your contract, you're going to go to your employer and say, you know, inflation was at a 40 year high six months ago. Uh, you got to give me a little more than the usual one to 2% that I'm used to getting. And employers probably have to capitulate to some extent. Uh, the problem is, will that be able to sustain itself for the next six months where you can get these four or 5% wage increases, or will we see that? the the risk of a recession or an actual recession takes some of their bargaining power away from them and and they do moderate down to two three percent speaking of uh, mr macklem and the bank of canada uh as, as he and his staff look at these two reports uh moshe what's what's the the end game here is it steady as she goes or do we have to hit the button again what, what do you think is going to happen uh, yeah, I can't see that they're going to increase interest rates. Uh, you know, they really still need to wait for those big increases back in the summer of last year to to work their way through the economy, and they haven't fully come through yet. So, uh, you know, increasing is probably not in the cards. Decreasing is also not in the cards either. We're not in a recession. We haven't seen uh, any sort of data to suggest that the economy is in trouble. So, you'd want to hold on to those arrows. Uh, for the time being and and take them out of your quiver when you need it. Uh, when we talk about the impact this is having on, on people's uh, daily lives, and, and, and now that we're, uh, most of us anyway, into tax time, it's about time you open the envelope with your T4 slip in it because you've only got a couple of weeks left to file. But you start looking at some of those RRSPs or whatever, and, and this it was 2022 is a hell of a year. I mean, a lot of people took a hit on this. When, do we, when can we start to see some of those numbers going back up again? It usually moves roughly in line with the economy, right? So I think that globally, there's a lot of caution out there right now. So, you know, we're talking about, will Canada have a recession or not? But I think Canada's economy is is a lot stronger than a lot of, say, the G7 or a lot of the, the, the rich world. So, uh, you know, I think once you see that maybe the worst of the inflation is passed, once we see that we're going to live with COVID and, and make a go of it, and once you see that supply chains start to, to really reconstruct themselves, the, the market's going to recover. Um, the the thing with investments, right, is that when you're investing in your RRSP, it's usually for, say, a 10 to 40 year horizon, depending on your age. Mm -hmm. uh, the worst case for anybody is obviously to, to see the market tank the way it did when you're just a couple of years from retirement because there's just not enough time for, for your money to recover in time. Uh, but if you have a long longer horizon, let's say, uh, this this is just a, a blip on the screen, and, and it'll pass. Moshe Lander at uh, Concordia University. As always, Moshe, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know Canadians could not be more proud. Proud to have for the first time a Canadian astronaut who will travel to deep space as part of the Artemis II mission. 
That, of course, is uh, Innovation Minister uh, Philippe, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who was in Houston yesterday for the announcement of uh, the Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen, who is going to be on the crew for the next mission to the moon. A lot of excitement about that, and a great piece that uh, was written uh, in theconversation.com that talks about this, too. Uh, about, of course, Colonel Hansen and others as the next humans to fly to the moon. The author of the piece uh, joins us right now. He is uh, Dr. Gordon Osinski, who is a professor of Earth and Planetary Science at Western University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, I'm sure that the reaction in London, Ontario was, was magnificent yesterday. Local boy makes good. I mean, uh, of course, we know that uh, Jeremy Hansen has been, you know, the Canadian forces for quite some time and involved in the space program for quite some time. But uh, this is a, a, a this is an important appointment. I mean, you know, this back to the moon. And I know that President Biden talked about this uh, when he was in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and from what we've been able to ascertain from this, this is a very important mission, isn't it? This is yeah hugely important, and I think it's you know it's a, a monumental day for the Canadian space program. Um, I think you know we'll look back hopefully in a few years' time. We'll rank up there, you know, with the first flight of a Canadian astronaut that was Mark Gonneau, of course, or you know the launch of the Canada arm. So it's a, a big moment for the Canadian space program, of course, for Jeremy. And uh, as you say, uh, this is a really important mission. Artemis II is the uh, next step in the Artemis program, and the mission after that is when we head to the surface. And, and let's let's talk a little bit about that because I'm sure that the, the whole space program and, and the moon uh, issues, are the, of course, probably not in front of mind for a lot of people because it's been a long time since the United States, in particular, has decided to to go to this extent. Uh, you know, we all remember Neil Armstrong and the other subsequent trips to the moon, and then we kind of lost that uh, with the Apollo program. Uh, being terminated. Uh, why going back now? And why is it so important now? For sure. Well, I, I think it's been a long time coming. I'll begin by that. <laughs> you know, as to why now, I think, you know, the stars have aligned, um, various countries on Earth are coming together. Um, and it's, I guess it's just the right time. You know, we've got some new advances in technology. You know, if you watch kind of the news and see all what SpaceX is doing, uh, we finally have this new Orion vehicle uh, that NASA has designed. And so I think everything is just coming together at, you know, this moment in history. Um, I think many of us wish it had happened a decade ago, but, you know, it's still just as exciting that we're happening now. Because uh, as you say, you know, it's been over 50 years. Uh, it was before I was born, before I'm sure many of your listeners were born. Uh, and so, yeah, looking forward to this uh, next chapter of going back um, as to, you know, why we're going back to the moon. Um, well, the Apollo program, you know, taught us a lot, um, but it kind of answered a whole bunch of questions we had. But we have a, a lot of new questions about the moon, about even the origin of the Earth that we could answer by going back to the moon. And, of course, as, you know, the NASA administrator said, this is an important step in getting us to another major goal, which will be getting humans to Mars uh, for the first time in, you know, hopefully a decade or so time. And, and this is... Uh Basically, I, I guess they're going to be a pit stop along that true. Uh, you know, it, it's not going to be a, a you know a direct flight from the from Earth to to Mars. There's going to have to be uh, some work done, and and it's as you say, maybe even setting up settlements. But this mission in itself, talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the spacecraft itself, uh, the Artemis two spacecraft. Because again, this is uh, this is relatively new to the program, the program itself, of course. But this particular mission, uh, Professor, seems 
almost akin to to, to Apollo 13, uh, which, of course, of course, was basically the same idea. I mean, they were not going to touch down on the moon, but they wanted to, I guess, work out the kinks and make sure that everything was going to go smoothly for the, the expected uh, mission onto the moon again, too. And uh, as, as Colonel uh, Hanson was explaining, I was watching a couple of the interviews he did this morning on, on Canadian TV. It's, it's almost like they want to take this thing up there and see if it's going to be able to perform to the extent that they hope it will. Uh, absolutely, yes. You know, So we have the overall Artemis program, which is a series of missions to get us back to the lunar surface. Uh, the first installment of that uh, was last November. You may remember that we had the launch of Artemis 1. Mm-hmm. This was testing the rocket and this Orion capsule that sits on top where the humans, you know, are. And it was the first time that either of those had been, you know, used. So that had no people on board. And then we're taking a pretty major step, right, for Artemis 2 and Jeremy's mission where we're putting humans in that uh, Orion spacecraft for the first time. And so, yeah, you know, they're going to they're gonna launch, they're going to spend a couple of days in what we call actually a high Earth orbit, which is, you know, about 30,000 kilometers away from Earth, much, much further than the International Space Station. So, you know, right then, that will be a major step and major advance, um, you know, that we've further than we've been in the last 50 years. They'll spend those couple of days, you know, making sure, obviously, that in particular, what we call the life support systems work, you know, the systems on the spacecraft that keep the humans alive. Those are absolutely critical. And, you know, of course, on Artemis 1, they're all tested, but, you know, this will be tested for the first time with humans. If all looks good, you know, they fire the rockets on the Orion spacecraft and then they do a flyby of the moon. Um, Not quite like what they did with Apollo 8 where they went into orbit. So this is gonna kind of slingshot and actually go further beyond the moon than any humans have ever gone before. So, you know, even though this is a test mission, they're not gonna land on the surface, there'll be some pretty big records broken with this mission that we'll have uh, Jeremy Hansen on. As you mentioned in the uh, the piece in the conversation, it was uh, quite interesting to read. Uh, you, you've reminded us, I guess, about Canada's commitment to the space program. I, I think a lot of us remember the Canada arm and how proud we were when that was, was you know, initially used in, in the NASA programs. Uh, but we have invested a lot of time and expertise into these programs, haven't we? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've seen, I think, a recommitment and a resurgence in the Canadian space program in the last uh, kind of three, four years. Um, you know, the commitment to Canada on one on the shuttle and Canada on two on the space station, it goes back decades. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been used still, um, but that actual commitment, um, the partnership with NASA that gets us flights on the space station, that was made, you know, two, three decades ago. And so we've now have this new commitment uh, where Canada said, you know, we're going to join you, NASA and other countries from around the world in this Artemis program and going back to the moon. We have uh, Canada Arm 3 in the pipeline, the MDA based in Brampton is building, and that's going to be on what we call the Lunar Gateway, which is going to be kind of like an outpost around the moon. And uh, just even in last week's federal budget, um, I think many of us are quite surprised because there was some more funding for what they've called mm-hmm. a lunar uh, a lunar utility rover, I think was the phrasing, and that's going to be a rover that will hopefully um, go up and kind of an assistant with the astronauts. And so it really is an exciting time. Um, you know, Canada's decided to to go with our partners once again, like we did with the space station kind of two, three decades ago. 
Fascinating stuff. And uh, I direct our listeners to theconversation.com, uh, and you can read the piece for yourself. They talk about the, the rover, kind of attend to a doom buggy, I guess, uh, that the, the first uh, Apollo missions used. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank care now. Dr. Gordon Osinski uh, from uh, Western University, very much involved in this too with his own work uh, in, uh, as uh, well, especially as a geologist, of course, uh, the moon rocks and a number of other things. So they're heading back. It's going to be a year or so before they do it, but there's a lot of work to be done and a lot more to be told in this story about Canada's involvement in the return of the moon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.